The Foreshore Listens, a series of audio zines based on the Foreshore discussion sessions that considers the potential of the Foreshore as both concept and site. The place between the high and low tide mark. It is a place of friction and constant movement, a zone of unclear jurisdiction, and thus contestation. The Foreshore Initiative asks the following. How do we generate conditions of emergence? How do we take up space differently? How do we support unruly practices and futures? This episode, Water Weight, Friction Possibility, is about swimming through confluence and intervention. Edited by Dan Pon, with sound design by Pietro Samarco. For more information and other episodes, visit www.theforeshore.org. You can also find an index for each episode of Who Said What that links to recordings of the Foreshore Talks. This series of podcasts, The Foreshore Listens, is an other sites project coordinated by Gen Y, generously supported by the City of Vancouver Public Art Program, the British Columbia Arts Council, and the Canada Council for the Arts. The Foreshore is another sites project in collaboration with Kimberly Phillips, Access Gallery, and the Contemporary Art Gallery. Zhou 更不知流過多少苦水華人身份亦不時成為風生水起的象徵
Now when they're in alignment, so right like there, you'll see it come around again, you have what are called the spring tides. And those are the tides that are the highest of the highs and the lowest of the lows. Okay, and then when you see the, in the, the other, when they're not in alignment, they're called the neap tides, which apparently is meaning like shrinkage or yeah. less. And so that's when you have, I guess, the less extreme of the tides. Close was land that certain made admiral the butt. Land of indication and be too few to seemed it. These barnacles are filtering the water and um, you know we, we often think that Vancouver won't have a water problem but uh, we don't know in relation to all this the pollutants and chemicals and plastics etc. So how do we deal with all of those troubles? Ship the near Reed green, a and pipers sand, so they. A friend of mine said that walking along the river and not swimming in it is like walking next to a friend and not talking. <laughs> I really appreciate you asking about, you know, about our barnacle research because nobody ever comes and asks about our barnacle research. <laughs> On the Fraser River, walking and swimming along its shores from Yale, BC to the mouth. How do you make people bump into each other over and over? How do you make it feel like a welcoming space? So let's, let's look at making kin first, which is even in this little room, how do we begin to build kinship? Um, something that I always do in my classes, and I've got a couple of students here, and it's great to see you guys, um, is to understand that we are now this these groups, these individuals here are not individuals, but actually we're building a, an entity. You know, I'm pretty interested in the, in, the, in the intersection of different types of human systems, I would, I would say. Um, and in trying to sort of draw connections between what, uh, what are apparently, may appear to be quite disparate types of, of activities. You're trying to get people accustomed to being with, eating with, <laughs> doing things with other people and finding that cosmopolitanism that is so key to the, you know, justice machine that things yeah. are when you have the tolerance of difference and accustomed, being accustomed to being around difference. A lot of the Chinese in this, uh, in this Chinatown, but also Chinatowns in San Francisco, LA, New York, they're all from that region of Toisan. Hmm. So a lot of the early mig migrating free Chinese so there's these kind of like residual um, 
re reluctance to move outside of one's known known field of, of expertise. But then you get these people together, and the next thing you know, they're all tackling each other. And so after the doors of perception, um, Aldous Huxley and Humphrey Osmond continued an ongoing correspondence for many years, and eventually, um, through a series of letters, they would try to come up with a word that could describe the experiences. Um, produced by mescaline and LSD. Kinds diverse of fruits and water much and green very trees so they landed heaven. Centuries ago, the word emergent referred to anything rising out of a sur surrounding medium and coming into view or notice. The emergent was unforeseen and unexpected, and as such, its sudden presence demanded immediate attention. The, the care with which you ask the questions and the depth with which you investigate situations. So how did I become an artist and not <laughs> some insurgent somewhere? <laughs> Or perhaps I am an insurgent. <laughs> so I became a conductor for understanding the experience of entering a habitat that's not my own. Um, the force of the water and its ever-shifting currents and temperature fluctuations. Like it was really, it actually taught me a huge amount about how the tides work, and I would go into the same place twice and it would be totally different, like the pull of the river and the water level. And, um, um, and the effect of the resource industries on the river's ecology. That's still permeable, so we put up these man-made structures, but um, there's all these holes in it as you go, go around and see all these, all these um, holes. And the term I really like that is called is the term desire paths. So it's kind of like putting our human behavior, forcing it into, this, into, into um, lockstep with the natural environment in a way that we're kind of not expecting. And I'm, I'm not going to insert rationality here and try to explain Don Haraway. Instead, I would like to speak beside in terms of also critiquing human exceptionalism, which is that how we have come to know the world is purely through so-called human genius, rather than uh, seeing the world for what it really is, the abundance of it, the richness of it. So, what I've been wondering about is how we might turn away from the overvaluation of phenomena such as growth, gain, expansion, and accumulation, which, as we know, in sort of economic terms, these are the things that are most valued um, in sort of North American society, anyway. Um, and so, how can we reori reorient ourselves toward contraction, loss, shrinkage, and dispersal as being desirable, um, as being beneficial, as being transformative? What does feel appealing is is um, to feel like there's a kind of 
that there's a potential to um, to to help convince people of, of a new kind of a approach, new possi of possibilities that, that one hadn't thought of. And Welks, which is a kind of intertidal snail in Puget Sound area, there's been a study conducted that shows that they actually are so attuned to the tides that they fast during the neap tides and then eat, like, feast for four days during the spring tides because they take advantage of the fact that they eat so slowly. Apparently it takes them about 15 hours to eat one barnacle. So if they, if they focus, I mean, if they are exposed to varying tides during that time, dramatic shifts in tides, they, get, they could die and they could, you know, they won't survive. So instead they've evolved in such a way that they take advantage of the tides. Tentacularity means, on some levels, the ability to be thinking with eight tentacles because each tentacle of an octopus has its own little heart and brain. It's, it's doing its own little thing there. And, um, you know, it's not one singularity which humans have become so good at. And, and this is the, probably the, the problem of the Enlightenment, which is that it has caused such a uh, problematic Ignorance. The West Coast has been connected in communication for years, up to very, very recently, has been very strongly connected. Um, labor movements, all of that transfer of information back and forth, crossing borders, has been immensely strong. Um, part of that does tie back to indigenous belief, and a large part of it also ties in to the beliefs of the international workers of the world, which the first union to come along and say that you must break the color line, you must break the class line at, at, at any cost. To create this archive that's kind of like an intervention into this idea of the biographical narrative and it, it mimics and sort of utilizes art historical validating processes to to build this fictional history. More was there and west-southwest was course the 1492 11th October, Thursday. History is an ideological project, it's a political project. The people that write histories, um, you know, have um, biases and agendas and, and it's written by people, so it's not neutral. He had moved to the province in 1950 after being fired from the National Film Board um, for being a communist. Um, he and his wife, Doris Rands, were both um, key players in the struggle to achieve universal medical care in Saskatchewan, which would eventually form the model for the entire country. Part of the accessibility, too, is um, you were able to fish and hunt beforehand um, but this foreshore that was your home, but now is prime real estate because CP is in, uh, big wood companies are in, the canneries there, which all of your relations are working in because you can't fish for yourself. You're now required to have a job. 
it saw first should who him who to Maravedas ten thousand were which sovereigns the by promised rewards other the besides doublet silk a give would he one of the bigger kind of um, lasting studies they um, um, started doing um, using hallucinogenics for therapeutic purposes and specifically they were working with um, LSD um, and alcoholics and so they had unprecedented success rates treating alcoholism mm -hmm. with in combination LSD in combination with therapy I guess here are some low ties coming up um, you can always look them up they're very easy to find online uh, and can we do something a little differently during those times what would that look like Staying with trouble, meaning whatever issue we're going to be stuck with, so say if it's plastics or oil, the tar sands, we face these things and we deal with them. During low tide, you know, you can go out on the shore, you can find food, and apparently this was true in the Great Depression, that many people realized that during low tide, you could go into the shore, find food, and you could eat that day. Well, False Creek used to extend further all the way up to Clark Avenue, and between Maine and Clark, it was kind of like a, a salt marsh, which is a sort of muddy area. Um, and there was, in 1870-something, it, um, they put a bridge over Main Street to continue Main Street, and the area on, between Main and Clark became this big sort of muddy cesspool where, where um, rusted stuff started to pile up and it became sort of an eyesore. Um, and, and a stain? And a stain. <laughs> It seems like as access continues to proliferate, the, that act of representation is going to never end. How do we see the other no longer as othered, but actually a part of, of you? The whole full messy complexity of of any given moment is too much to write in history, right? And so history is by definition uh, a winnowing away and a selecting of what's important and what's pivotal. And it's always, um, it's always personal. It's saw, and so did he. It, at look, should he, that, and light, a B to seemed there that, said and. Scientists have now been able to decode brain signals that the brain will send to about a centimeter outside your skull. And they can um, actually 
predict with 95% accuracy what people are looking at and it's not language based. There's something else that's going on that I think we, we don't see. How do we break down those fences? Right? How, how do we make sure that the lot gets in? Land. Was it a firm? Not could he, that uncertain so? Was it though, light a saw? I don't know how, I, I don't know. I think people kind of, um, I've had people tell me that it takes, as they go through, they're like, is this person real? Isn't this real? And they're kind of, that that ambiguity is part of how the piece functions. And so that which is disavowed can be filled with this kind of montage of fantasy. I'm interested in the work of imagination to, um, to open up worlds for me. The continental divide used to be a shoreline a uh, hundred million years ago in the Cretaceous period. Maybe you guys all know this, but it's new to me. That's why there's so many marine fossils in the, um, in the Rocky Mountains. It's because the whole of North America was, there was an inland sea, a very shallow inland sea. And in fact, uh, where Tuasin is was an island. Up until 2,000 years ago, it was an island. Um, and I, and I'm probably with rising seas, it's going to become an island again this century. Yeah. Uh, and that's, you know, they're building a giant mall that's about to go underwater. You can tell by looking at it that it's a, you know, it's a relatively fresh fill-in because that's exactly what it is. And right after the Powell Street riots, people had been fighting over this foreshore. Underneath there is a tidal zone. Underneath there are the remnants of people's homes and people's boats and people's community. That was what the response was. Midnight after hours two to up. Hour and miles twelve of rate. The at along went they and course West, original, his to returned, admiral, the sunset after. How might we understand our own time differently and maybe imagine different futures for ourselves? There is this idea of global tidal friction, which is literally acting as a break on the Earth's rotation, which means each day is one fifty thousandth of a second longer than the day before it. That doesn't seem like much, right? But over geological time, it really adds up. So it's believed that over 400 million years ago, the day was 21 hours long. And the moon was 10,000 times closer than it is now. Or I mean, uh, 10,000 miles closer than it is now. Which, have also, which would make bigger tides and also more frequent tides. So in this sense, the tides are literally slowing us down. Even though, based on our cultural, economic, and social experience, and technological experience, time seems to be speeding up. So we have to get rid of thinking that we live in an Anthropocene. 
because it's it's a dead end uh, epoch. Signs these at rejoiced and afreshed breathed everyone. Berries with covered branch, small a and land of signs saw also. So the Athabasca, of course, um, runs right through the tar sands in northern Alberta and empties out into the Slave and then the Mackenzie Delta. Um, so all that toxicity goes straight into the Arctic Ocean. Cecil John Rhodes, which is what Rodish was uh, named after Cecil John Rhodes, Rhodes scholarships, all of those things were named after Cecil John Rhodes. Um, Rhodes was a businessman, but he was vicious. He was the guy who was going to carve up Africa. He was going to create um, great wealth for himself. And um, in creating the colonies, um, he also created uh, basically conditions for the British to be uh, owners of all the wealth, um, to gain a lot of riches from Africa, and also set up a system of white supremacy. And she's writing and she's like, don't write me out. And he evidently, well, maybe I'm getting her mixed up with somebody else. Anyways, he wrote her out. And most of the um, really strong admonitions against property speculation that were in the Vancouver Declaration are gone. That is how they managed to get it passed by consensus. Uh, a rough boundary of what used to be this intertidal zone, where that, where the, the water used to come up and down, which was a really permeable boundary between where where animals and plants and things used to move up back and forth, and the water used to move up and down. Fences rot out. <laughs> it doesn't matter what you make them of. And fences along the foreshore especially rot out. You can build out of anything. You can build out of concrete, this, that, and the other thing, and it rots out by the salt chuck. And so I'm, I'm at the place of, like, how do, we, how do we break down the fences? How do we change that relationship and that communication? And at the same time, the old ports, which were previously very embedded in city life, even when I was a kid, like it was really way more easy to kind of access the port um, and then to understand some aspects of it. Um, in many cases now, the ports have moved far away from urban centers and containerization itself the, um, has served to abstract and conceal um, the cacophony, but also the visual and olfactory assault of um, freighted goods from view. 9-11 was given as the reason why the docks were put behind behind fences, were the reasons why we can't all just walk down to the foreshore and we can't go out there and we can't talk with the people that are working there and, you know, experience, you know, what is happening in that space and view how work is being done and how people are relating with one another in that space. This new and highly contested route would cut through salmon-bearing streams, under rivers, provincial and municipal parks, commercial and residential properties, and unceded territories. They own in that they have these extended 
you know, 100-year, one company even has a 1,000-year lease on the foreshore, right? According to the government of Canada, you're not ever supposed to own the foreshore, right? It belongs to everybody, right? Everybody, right? And, um, but, you know, notwithstanding, it doesn't actually really work that way when you can have these extended leases. The route cut through a lot of green spaces, wetland areas, streams, and the Brunette River area. Often these in-between areas that sat empty, but not actually empty at all. And, and so this, this kind of state of being in between, operating, uh, operating outside of a, you know, a specialized realm is, it, it's actually a really formative condition for my work. Now, in apartheid Rhodesia, to be Chinese meant that you weren't either white or black, you were some foreshore, <laughs> some interstitial <laughs> space, some precarious space. Interstitial or, I don't know exactly how to describe it, or often sitting in limbo. And a cognitive blankness follows. Thus, despite increasing international mercantile dependence on ocean transport, and despite advances in oceanography and marine biology, the sea is in many respects less comprehensible to today's elites than it was before 1945 in the 19th century or even during the Enlightenment. We've gone from a place where within my generation alone, um, <clears throat> you could go down to the dock, you could throw your crab trap in, you would be there talking with longshoremen. You could go on the ships. People used to go on the ships all the time, right? And trade things with sailors from all around the world. Trade information, trade items, ideas, right? And that's all changed. And that within a very, very short period of time. How do we work with other species? Um, and then how do we imagine this Cthulhu scene, um, which is, I guess she advocates for empathy. Um. Um, and weirder still, the theme this year is the idea of Vancouver, newly tacked to the edge of the edge of North America. The port of Vancouver marked a point where Europe comes to its end and gives way to something else called Asia. But just when it has arrived at its limit and begins to rub against the borders of the East, the West folds back to find that even at its end, it is still contiguous with itself. I think of this place as a place of edges and of double backs, of departures and arrivals, and like you, know, you guys are saying, the space where things go through. Um, it's also a space of washings up and of uncomfortable reminders, hopefully, continually. We are sitting in this precarious but beautiful situation having a multi-million dollar waterfront property. Development and monopolization of land is the predominant experience. I was told the story of how the expo maps were actually being built on styrofoam. So I think a lot of the land that is in the flats that have been built upon, I'm very curious as to what allows them to close. To create an alternative narrative of what Vancouver is in relation to its, its temporality, its relation to a really synthetic deep time. So in the city of Vancouver, it was, it was framed not as labor unrest, but as community unrest. And in a way, they were correct. They were absolutely correct, right? Because labor unrest is community unrest. Community unrest is labor unrest. It's all the same thing. If one set of people are being violated, everybody is being violated. <laughs>
I'm interested in, in like the possibilities of where we can create dwelling, where there are new models for dwelling, where, 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 where one doesn't necessarily think it exists or... You know, the city of Vancouver has had a long history of trying to stop public space, of not wanting to produce spaces that people can gather in. The whole, the, the, the fact of the fountain on the north class of the courthouse, which became the VAG, was that was to get in the way of people gathering there. And of course, we did anyway for Occupy and various other things. The design of Robson Square with all of the different levels and is another example of deliberate policy of not producing public space where, of any size where people can gather. To try to have a, you know, an equal playing field with developers, it's very difficult for civic organizations, art organizations to do that. And it's critical. You cannot make a livable city if you build it through speculative purposes. We only build here through speculative purposes. Mm -hmm. And maybe the risk of not being seen as such a huge hero, because we also, what other city heroicizes developers? And George Vancouver came, he did come in direct contact with the Tsleil-Waututh, with the Squamish people, with um, the Stolo people, which is not often talked about, and the Musqueam people. And all of these people have a very direct, distinct relationship with the foreshore and with the land here. And the, all of those people to this day are still very much in dialogue. The best way of storing capital in the world is art and an apartment in New York, London, or Vancouver. And that these four things, these four things have supplanted gold. Like, where does art end and what are its concerns? And like, you made this point, like child rearing, gardening, like what, what, where do we draw these lines and what's in and what's out? And to me, like sort of really opening up where we attend our aesthetic questions and what constitutes and like beauty and where it sits and like paintings are like, yeah, that's cool, it's beautiful. But like, we need like, homes that are beautiful in like many different dimensions. You know, you, you start having timber fall down, you're running out of the big trees, you go to export something, some land, what's next? You run out of fish, run out of trees. But it is that sort of banana republic, you know, exportation. And of course, who makes the money? A few locals. The stuff that happens in the moment is there's way more stuff that happens than ever gets solidified into the pillars that become history. Yeah. This totally. pillar of yeah. things and this pillar. There's a, you know, before that so solidified, there's a crap ton of stuff that yeah. happens out there that yeah. just gets washed away in the, by the tide, right? As a longshore worker, this person is, is related directly to the work that I do. The people that greeted George Vancouver did the work that I do. I don't want people to have a registered advance. They can just, you just walk in, you can sign your name, I think that's it. And so people came in by the thousands, and they came from all over North America and big convoys. Um, they didn't allow camping because that's a big thing the city cannot tolerate is tents. And um, I want to also say thank you to William Nahani, one of the founding members of this gang. All of the people that are around him are part of the Bows and Arrows. Right, which was known as one of the first and one of the most strongest uh, longshore gangs. It was the only gang that could not be broken by the companies. The work that needs to be done is here. Um, it's very easy for us as North Americans to be going all over the world, um, but actually what, what is the work here uh, in terms of indigenous sovereignty?
in terms of um, the dec decolonialization here. Vancouver's uh, foreshore has also been a place that shifts and moves. It's not always specifically that place that is in between the tide. It is also a larger space of imagination of how a community, you know, shifts and moves, you know, within a few blocks of that space and is absorbed, <coughs> right, or returned, very often not returned.